So we are very thrilled today to welcome Dr. Reshmi Banerjee. Um, and uh, Reshmi has just officially joined us at Sanancy's College at the Asian Studies Center as a visiting scholar, where she'll be developing some of the work that she's talking about um, today. And she comes to us from uh, being a, a visiting fellow at uh, SOAS um, most recently, and uh, has a career that has sort of started out in food security, food policy in India, Northeast India, and has shifted to also expand and include land, and has now started to shift across the Indo-Myanmar border where she's looking um, not only at populations within Myanmar, but populations uh, from Myanmar moving across the border there. Um, so uh, I, I will turn it over to her and ask you to join me in welcoming Dr. Reshmi Banerjee. Thank you, Matt, for uh, welcoming me into the college and also for inviting me for the seminar. Um, what I'm going to do is basically narrate to you a story, a story of two communities who shared history, who shared tradition and customs and culture, and then with independence, they found themselves on both sides of the border. And over the years, I think um, politics, um, basic competition for resources and livelihood have kind of created, I wouldn't say an open conflict, but I would say that there has been a kind of latent um, animosity and hostility. So the relationship has kind of, you know, swayed like a pendulum from that of solidarity to uh, sometimes, uh, you know, uh, hostility. Uh, and once or twice there have been sporadic cases of violence. Um, so I'm basically going to look at the Chins and the Chins moving into the state of uh, Mizoram in Northeast India. Um, many, many of them, 100,000 actually, the number in Mizoram, capital Izol. And then many of them have moved into the national capital, New Delhi. Refined borders in general, they have their uh, own narrative. Um, it's an interesting narrative for me because it's not a normal area. You know, people who live in the borders, or especially in Northeast India, um, if I go there, they'll say that I'm coming from the periphery because I belong to Delhi. Whereas for them, that's the mainstream. So it's, you know, core um, and periphery, these concepts are very relative. And you get to know that when you are in a border region. So it's, it's very dynamic. Uh, relationship, power relationships are pretty fluid. There's a lot of prevalence of non-state actors. Um, insurgency has been there for quite some time. And we have varied kinds of conflicts like, um, you know, environmental destruction, problems of land, um, human trafficking, drug trafficking. And uh, we find that these are also areas where there has been a lot of uh, socio-cultural interaction. So it's, it's an interesting zone. It's a um, zone which is, I think, interesting for social science researchers, and yet we find that it doesn't find, uh, no, this area doesn't find so much of importance in public imagination as well as in policies. So even in the media, for a very long time, even media didn't cover this region uh, you know, particularly well. It's only now that media gives a lot of importance to border issues, Northeast India, Chin, Chin problems, and Myanmar. Now, we have various scholars who have talked on borders. Uh, Willem Ramchandran talks about the state's pursuit of territoriality and its complete control over social life and its, uh, you know, how it produces borders and makes them crucial markers of success. 
Janet Stulgin has talked about how borders on you know margin and it's a dividing line, but it also separates people and therefore it separates the social relationships which are surrounding that line. We have Thomas Wilson who's talked about how borders have only three elements, the legal borderline, the physical structure of the state and frontiers, by which he means zones which you know kind of stretch uh, both away and across borders. But he also, both of them say that these are domains of a lot of conflict, domains of contested power. Mandy Sedan in her uh, new book, Being and Becoming Kachin, uh, talks about how understanding the history of this region is very important, especially of these peripheries, because they have a immense capacity to disturb world order because they can produce a lot of political violence and therefore it's very important to understand the background and the history of this particular you know border zone and i think history you know i, I am a political scientist but i tend to gravitate towards history and i cover my history well because i think there are a lot of learning from history and you can kind of understand the conflicts of the current times better if you cover history well William Anchandal has also talked about Zomia, um, about this entire stretch from Kashmir to Nepal to uh, Northeast India, Sikkim uh, to Yunnan, uh, which this entire region is like a cultural zone. So it not only shares history, but language, geography, mountain agriculture, uh, a lot of similarity in this region. And uh, James Scott similarly talks about upland Southeast Asia. Janice Turgan also talks about landscape plasticity. Um, whereby she says that, you know, uh, people in this region, they are very aware of what's happening. We think that these are border communities, they don't understand politics or they don't understand economic issues, but they do. And therefore they kind of, uh, based on what's going on around them, based on state policies, based on the local dynamics, they constantly uh, reinvent themselves and they change their policies and their way of living according to that, and therefore landscape plasticity. Iowa Ong also talks about uh, the, these border communities as aboriginal periphery, uh, whereby, again, um, whether it's illegal migrants, whether it's farmers in these regions, constantly redefining themselves. So they are, in a way, in a dynamic zone, but they're also very, very creative in their own uh, social spaces, in their own private zones, where they constantly have to figure out how they place themselves vis-a-vis -vis the local community, vis-a-vis -vis the local plans, as well as the plans of the so-called uh, central state. So they, they face this uh, hegemonizing center constantly in their lives and therefore I think they are also very careful of how they place themselves in that entire politics of that region. Now we do find that frontier uh, is mentioned in colonial accounts and this particular region, uh, not, too many mention, no, not too many mentioned in these books because it was considered as an area which was difficult, which was inaccessible, a lot of savage tribes. But we find that the Treaty of Yandabo in 1826, whereby the King of Ava gave up control over uh, you know, Kachar and Jaintia and these particular regions, does find mention. But the people of this region, they were not included in this particular treaty at that point of time. We also have recognition of Patkai Range as the official uh, border in 1837 between Assam and Burma. But again, uh, you know, the, what would happen to the tribes of this region, that was not really, uh, you know, mentioned uh, in detail. The Government of India Act 1935 separated uh, British Burma from, uh, you know, India at that point of time. And Independence Acts of India and Burma, again, they did not uh, have a, you know, kind of official boundary uh, in 1947. Official boundary we find in 
only 1967 through the boundary uh, bilateral agreement and it was understood that one could enter these were porous zones and one one could enter up to about 25 miles or 40 kilometers into each other's um, terrain so the question of people the question of tribal areas uh, the question of what would happen to the people of this particular region was kind of i wouldn't say it was left out completely but it was not clearly specified in these uh, acts so you know ambiguity was obviously there of what would happen to them ultimately now we do find that in spite of common roots as i said when i started that they have had this uh, kind of latent uh, hostility and animosity but i want to go back to those common roots uh, you know in my first half of my presentation um we find the pemberton report talks about how zo highlanders uh, were divided into two distinct groups of chin and lushais by the uh, colonial officials um we also find captain yule talks about the chins and the lushais being of indo-chinese kindred known as the kukis the nagas and by many more specific names we also find the burma census report at that point of time 1891 talked about the lushais of bengal and assam kukis of manipur the chins all more or less of the same race having the same kind of government the same kind of origin customs beliefs so basically saying that they were uh, around the, you know the same kind of uh, you know same community we also find john shakespeare as read um, and captain forbes have their own notions captain forbes actually called the race tibeto burman john shakespeare talked about both groups of highlanders and he called them zoes and i quote john shakespeare here he said nevertheless there is no doubt that the kukis chins and lushais are all of the same race as read also called the lushais uh, not zo at that time he called themselves zao he said the lushais called themselves zao Now, when the British took over Bengal, the Bengalis told the British that the Zos were Kukis. Um, the Bengali word meaning uh, for the Kukis, savage or hill tribes. But the British realized that the Lushais themselves were not calling themselves Kukis, and therefore it was a British invention that they named the tribes on the western side of the Zo country, which is current-day Mizoram, as Lushais. You know, so it was a British invention at that point of time. Nobody knew how to name these people. You know, they, they were pretty vague. Now, if we look at the eastern side of it, uh, the Chinmen Valley, when the Burmese came down towards the Chinmen Valley, they found that there were these Zo Highlanders who were carrying baskets. And in the, you know, in the Burmese language, uh, that basket means chin, and therefore they call themselves, you know, these are the Chin people or Chinmen. That means people with baskets found in the Chinmen Valley, uh, and that's how the name came. <laughs> Now, when we look at Burmese inscriptions, again interesting. G. H. Luce and F. K. Lehman. They were very intrigued by the way uh, the word Chin was on the inscriptions, and they felt that the Burmese and the Chins were friends or allies. But they later found that some of the inscriptions also said that there was slave trading along the Chinmen, which meant that you know probably. uh you know the burmese and the chins at that point of time were not in such a great uh, relationship now there are a lot of um, stories about how the um, you know the zo people how they originated now legends go that there was a cave called chinlung and that's that's the area from where the zoes actually started and you find this chinlung uh, story in their folklore in their folk music music which they call chunbia it's known in the local language as chunbia and constantly the reference to chinlung now the reason for moving from this cave was some people say that there were floods in this region 
some people say that there was this enormous darkness which covered that area and they got scared and they started moving but there are two stories of it one uh, one kind of stream of people moved southwards between the chinmin and the iravadi and when they reached these rivers they found that these these were such enormous rivers that they could not cross and therefore they settled on the banks of these rivers it was also interesting because they felt that it would be easier to settle because then they would not be attacked because even their enemies would find it difficult to cross these rivers the story also goes that they saw a rabbit floating on a log and therefore the idea came to them of building rafts the other uh, you know stream of people moved south to the west of the chinmin and they had reached the zo country and the arakan now the uh, nagas and the kachins they also have their own story about the zoes now the tangkul nagas are um, culturally and linguistically very similar to to the chins and uh, the um, nagas have a story that they say that they have the same ancestor which means the nagas the metis which are which are the manipur uh, people and the zoes have the same ancestor so the uh, zo was the eldest son and the meti being the youngest son we have the same ancestral roots the kachin legend is again even more i think for me interesting because the kachin say that they lost track of the zoes uh, so they were looking for their zo brothers and therefore they were looking for their footprints and footprints they named as khang khang meaning footprints and that's how they say that you know we were looking for the khangs khangs meaning nothing but the uh, these these people now we find that there were a lot of raids um, by the lushais and on the other side also by the the ones who were on the eastern side of the zoram country the chins uh, against the british and uh, we come back again to the conflict over land because because at that point of time the british were taking over land for uh, rubber plantations for tea um they were extracting timber and that brought them directly in conflict with the tribes of this region and the lushais were known to be um you know they were quite strong tribes like the nagas and uh, it was difficult to handle them because you know we talk about guerrilla warfare uh and how difficult it is to control insurgents in this in this particular region but the lushais were also very very strong uh, fighters and you know a tribal people and we have innumerable stories of how uh they attacked the british <coughs> now these are some of the stats that i have of how the tea gardens were burned down in kachar in alexandrapur in katlichara in nudigram all in on this side of the border western side of the border so 19 raids between 1834 and 54 30 raids between 1863 and 69 now this went on for quite some time and both sides uh, just did not know how to tackle the question of the lushais and the chins so both the west and the east both sides of the border were a bit disturbed now the turning point basically came in the story when the british planter's daughter mary winchester was kidnapped and that's the time when the british decided to retaliate now there are very interesting stories about when the british soldiers went into this terrain to save her they describe uh, the region and they talk about how these tribes used rice <coughs> rice was their main food anybody who um, brought enemy heads he was kind of you know given a prize so they would tie red and um, you know black threads around their uh, you know head and shoulders so they would decorate them they would also put food outside their homes for the departed souls and these are things which the british soldiers observed while they were going uh, in order to save her <coughs> we also find that there were a lot of expeditions during this time the chin lushai expeditions 
1870, the first superintendent of hill tracks was appointed. 1871-72, we have the frontier posts which were created for border protection and trade was initiated for the Lushais by opening bazaars. The Chins were also making waves during this time. We find 1889-1890, the Chin Lushais, um, you know, the expedition documents say that they were very, very sudden in their raids and they were very secretive of their plans. So nobody really knew how much distance they would cover in that mountainous terrain. So it was very difficult for the British also to judge where would you suddenly run into them, you know. And so it was, I mean, these are, these are, these are all there in the British Library in the manuscripts and it's quite an interesting uh, read. Expedition of 1891-92, Captain Riggs, uh, a British officer, and his assistant, Mr. Hall, they were assigned uh, the task of collecting intelligence reports and the routes of these tribunals. The chief commissioner kept on stressing that it was important to collect tri uh, tributes from them and to also make roads. Um, the chiefs were told that if they wanted to preserve themselves, then it was very important for them to maintain peace. So these are all uh, things which were going on when these expeditions were there. And finally, we find after the expeditions got over, the Zo country was divided administratively. So you have a West Zoram country and you have an East Zoram country. The West Zoram country was further divided into Northern Lushai and Southern Lushai. The Northern Lushai was under Assam, with Shillong as the capital, which is the current-day capital of Meghalaya. And Southern Lushai was under Bengal, the capital being Chittagong, now in Bangladesh. The East Zoram country had Tedin, Falam, and Hakka as the Chin Hills district. And it was either under a superintendent or a deputy commissioner at different times. It was only in 1897-98 that John Shakespeare created one district. Uh, in the western side, what he did was he united the northern and southern Lushai Hills district. And so it became you know, West Zoram and the other side was East Zoram. <coughs> now, um, the Chin Lushai Society. Now, it's said in certain uh, documents that there was nobody living in the Chinmin Valley before they came. And uh, it's very difficult for the Chins because they don't, you know, it's said that they don't have a written language. So, again, uh, one of the books said that there was a story. Um, the story was about a leather book of how the Burmese, they wrote their um, language on stone and it survived. Whereas the Chins wrote it on leather. And, you know, it was raining and then it says that a hungry dog just ate it up and their, you know, language disappeared. So they don't, so they don't, have, a, don't have a language. Um, you know, these are these are little little stories that I read while I was uh, you know researching on this topic. Um, the Chins were divided into four major groups according to the 1904 Linguistic Survey of India: Northern, Central, Old Kuki, and Southern. And in Central, we have uh, Lushais and you know, uh, Mizors and Lai, Mara. These are the other tribes uh, of Mizoram. We also have the role of village elders, uh, which you know was very, very important. You had village councils, which were called Klampi, and they were responsible for not only political, but judicial decisions, anything, any conflict, they handled it. Uh, the social system was divided into three classes, the noble, the ordi ordinary class, and the slaves. Now, this was a patriarchal society, but women did have powers. We find that um, women in the northern areas, um, they worked in the agricultural fields daughters and wives they worked whereas in the southern parts uh, women from respectable families did not work in the fields we also find that uh, the price of a woman from a noble family was five times higher than that of an ordinary woman and uh, she could improve her husband's social position through marriage so at the time of marriage the money was paid either to the bride's father or to one of her brothers 
one of her aunts and the brother of the mother. So all these five categories of people got money. So if you had to marry somebody from the nobility, you had to pay that much more, five times more. Um, also, she had no rights to receive uh, property once her father died. And I think mm -hmm. property issues continue to be uh, problematic in this part of uh, you know, the border region of India, uh, where women are still uh, kind of fighting for inheritance rights, for property rights. And one of the biggest honor that she could receive was the Puan Fai Kai, which was a ceremonial walk on expensive blankets. Um, the role of customs, religion, um, all these were very important. In fact, uh, you know, there were a lot of people who would use the clan name, and the clan chief was very, very important, whoever was the chief at that point of time, because he had so much of power, and one of the important powers being uh, power over land. So he had a lot of control over land. <coughs> Custom of me by Thir, I, I uh, think, you know, many of these uh, manuscripts and books, they talk about how customs and rituals were very important to them. It was part of their culture. And culture basically meant fung lam. Fung mean, meant culture. So how culture and religion was connected, how their customs were all connected. Um, the custom of me via Thar was basically that if a migrant would come to a village, then um, the tribal chief would actually tell all the others to help this migrant, not only to clear the fields, but also to provide food for him and to just make him comfortable. And uh, he was also supposed to be provided grains, which was known as Rahul Zang. And after that, when he would settle down, it was his duty to give a feast for the entire uh, community. And in case he was not able to do so, then he was given a bill, you know, that you have to pay for whatever we did for you. Uh, the Chins also believed in supernatural things, Kuang Rai, evil spirits. They believed, uh, you know, that there was a god for accident and sickness, Kuachia. God of the village was Kuahum. Banyan trees were considered as the home of the spirits. So, you know, they were very careful not to uh, cut down these trees and they would kind of, whatever sacrifices they made, it was in and around these trees. We also have rituals, which were important, as I said. Zara was considered as the holy day. Lopil Lu was basically a sacrifice which uh, you know they would make to make sure that uh, the crops, uh, you know, that they had good crops and they had good hunting uh, for that particular year. We also have Tual Dang, which was considered as the Qing New Year festival. And again, if you did not participate in this festival and if you were you know just out of the village, then the punishment was that you could not cultivate your field for the next three years. So that that much importance was given to these customs. Edmund Leach talks about how rituals make explicit the social structure, and this is kind of quite evident when we look at the, uh, this particular community. We find that Sosam Tuk was another uh, you know, uh, kind of ritual where the hunter would create the same number of stones outside his house as the number of animals that he had killed in the jungle, so that everybody knew in that village that he was quite an expert hunter. Ruak Hang was again uh, a festival for, uh, for the dead. And the feast, Skeki Fim, was interesting because anybody who got the tiger's head, he would give a feast for the entire community, and that was known as Skeki Fim. Kuang Kavi was something which was given by the most wealthiest man in the village. Now we have three accounts again of um, British officers, but before I uh, go into that, um, trademarks in this region were very important at that point of time. There was an existence of a bees uh, tax, and wax was exported as an item of trade. You had also salt and iron, which were considered as uh, important items of trade. 
but we also find and uh, you know this has continued even in current times that there was a destruction of a lot of flora and fauna and we find that the deputy commissioner of kachar mr kennedy commenting to the chief commissioner of assam at that point of time that reserves of rubber have gone down in the forests and elephants who uh, you know are continuously disappearing between the forests between kachar and chitagong so these forests used to have a lot of tigers and elephants and they are kind of dis disappearing and he was disturbed by that and uh, you know uh, both both the tribes as well as the british i guess were responsible for you know uh, destruction of both flora and fauna we find the um, accounts the three um, british soldiers the first one john whitehead was an english captain serving in the chin hills battalion and he talks about how you know first and foremost i think the manuscript talks a lot about the beauty of this region and uh, you know the greenery and the mountains um and how chins valued goods over money and the chins were head hunters he also talks about existence of coolies memorial posts were uh, existing outside the villages and he talks about the two tribes mongols versus the lushais he says that uh, there were families living on both sides of the border and there was a belief in the chin hills battalion that the former was uh, having a privileged position but that changed after independence when the lushais were privileged over the former um you know so these kind of things started happening even even before independence where there was this slight feeling that the other tribe was being you know had a more advantageous position than the other john de villiers account he was posted in the anti tank regiment burma artillery uh, in january 1948 again uh, the officer talks a lot about the beauty of the region and he said that he understood eternity when he went to this region and it's interesting for me uh, you know when i read these manuscripts because first of all they were very very poetic you know the way they have described uh, all the three officers very poetic and the second was that they were foreigners in this particular region you know and the fact that they have noticed these little little small details of the society was interesting for me i mean the observation powers were great um talked about existence of tidim coolies and how keys were used as ornaments by women so what women would do is you know they would wear these keys around their neck as ornaments he talks about hill music and hill dance and he said they were complicated why because their dance and their music reflected life and life for them was tough and therefore their dance was tough uh, he talks about disrupting influence of christianity and how hymns were introduced instead of uh, traditional music later how tea was introduced and zoo the rice beer which was a source of a lot of vitamins was abolished monthly newspaper of the chins polpi was introduced and he talks about um, the manuscript talks about rotten pork but we know it's fermented pork uh, so he used the word rotten pork and you know the smell that it had he also mentions that there were no police or border guards at that point of time and this is 1948 and i quote him he says the suspension bridge over the river was rotten with age a milestone on the river bank informed us that we were 101 miles from ijol and ijol was spelled very differently now we spell it with a i z a w l that time it was a i j a l so ijol he also says that staying with india for the tribes offered more than what burma could offer at that point of time so that was his opinion we also find captain g c rigby talks about how the crops were grown and how the chins loved Uh, you know they were healthy but they lived in unsanitary conditions the principal food crop was pum or pum san which was large millet talks about the raiding of of these um, tribes and he said that it was like a competition that if you raided one village then the other village would also raid another village so it was like a chain reaction 
you had to take you you were raided and plundered and therefore you had to take all that out onto another village so it was kind of a chain reaction a lot of raiding would go on not only they would attack the british but they would also attack other villages they also disliked the entry of foreigners and uh, the common traits of these tribes was drunkenness and lack of inquisitiveness um, we also have a Pausenhau movement during this time, which was initiated by a Sukte Chin, and he wanted to free the Chins from Nat worship. So they used to worship water, they would worship forests, and he was this particular Chin who wanted to free them from all this. Interestingly, this does not find mention in the 1911 or 1921 census, at least this particular group, which believed in him. And uh, again, interestingly, they, they did not prohibit drinking. They wanted to free... Um, you know these people from all these kind of superstitions you can say of believing in forests and water but um, they do not prohibit drinking which was again one of the issues at that point of time now the second um, and the first and the second world wars um, the tribes of this region supported the British especially in the second world war the Japanese bombed Rangoon on the 25th of December 1941 and it took about four months for the Japanese to reach the Chin Hills and 30,000 refugees, and I'm using the word for the first time, 30,000 refugees reached Imphal in March 1942, Manipur. Norman Kelly's account, he says that, you know, he made an address in 1942. He addressed all the villagers, the chiefs, the people of that region, the elders, urging them, urging these tribes to support the British against the Japanese. And he said that if you want freedom from want and you want uh, freedom from fear, then you must support the British. And again, this is very well documented in a manuscript in the British Library. We find that um, Shillong became a very happening place, not only because the Chin Hills Battalion went there to regroup themselves and retrain themselves, but also was uh, becoming a place for the refugees who were moving in uh, across from the frontier. Lushai Brigade had Chins in it also, and this was responsible for stopping the entry of the Japanese in the Lushai Hills. Um, I want to mention especially the two war office orders, uh, 1950 and 1953. The first order basically said that everybody who is coming from the western side, which is from the Indian side, he, can, he or she can be regarded as Burmese citizen unless they have declared an alienation for that. And 1953 basically said that the village headman's note, if you are moving from the west to the east, if you have a village headman who gives you a note saying that you can go on the other side, then that would be checked by the recruiting order. And anybody who moved from the west to the east, uh, he was supported. He was given land and also, um, you know, people took care that he could send money back home into the Indian side. Uh, so uh, I'm just trying to point out that, you know, there was a kind of solidarity. There was friendship uh, even after uh, independence. And we find the Chin Special Division Act 1948 basically stated that the Chins include the Lushais, the Kukis, the Nagas, the Burmans who were domiciled in the Chin Hills and in the adjoining areas. Interestingly, Again, in 1957, that adjoining areas word was deleted. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, when you're saying adjoining areas, it, it can include a lot of tribes, but you uh, make that amendment, remove that adjoining areas. So somewhere this kind of, um, you know, I won't say hostility, but mistrust and uh, not knowing about the other, that was kind of coming in. Um, while I was reading, uh, I tried to find out, because I was reading a lot about similarities, so I tried to find out about what were the differences between the Chins and the Lushais, if any. And the Chins had a prevalence of slavery in them. You know, they had slaves, whereas the Lushais didn't. The Lushais, however, had a concept called boy, B-O-I, boy, whereby, you know, they would ask somebody to help them, which was not total slavery, but 
somebody you know kind of helping them with their work the chins would ambush the enemy and kill whereas the lushais would raid the villages and take away their captives the chins used to consider that the lushais are excellent in witchcraft whereas the lushais themselves felt that the pates which is another tribe they were excellent in witchcraft so these are the three kind of differences that i found out between the two communities but we find that uh, 1946 the mizo union uh, demanded for an enlarged mizo district and in 1947 the bordoli commission received a memorandum for an enlarged mizo district and they wanted there was a demand that the name should be changed from mizo to lushai the lushai hills became a mizo district in 1954 1972 we have mizoram which was you know becoming a union territory and in 1987 it became a full fledged state but we find that over the years you know the the mizos the mizoram has had issues uh, with um, you know you have mizoization of society which they feel that uh, it kind of identifies with lushai culture that it's the more or less the mainstream the the majority community whereas the other tribes like the hamars or the pates or the brus they have kind of you know uh, gone into the background and therefore the um, what i would say ethnicization of spaces continues and they still want to create their own little little ethnic homeland either they are fighting for autonomous councils and they feel that the autonomous councils have not worked or they want a separate space or they want you know um, a kind of a little little space for themselves like the cookies want the cookie land or even the zomi national congress which was formed in 1972 they wanted to create a zoo land you know uh, uniting all the zoos of this particular region the pates tribe council also demanded the unification of chins in india burma and bangladesh so i think the this whole debate about how uh, politics of ethnicity and politics of fear has played out in this region i'll come i'll come to that later now when i come to mizoram obviously northeast india i just want to um, give you a background of uh, northeast india of how there are 475 ethnic groups and 200 of them are tribal groups and one of the main conflict areas uh, conflict points has been the presence of the military uh, and the armed forces special powers act Uh, which gives a lot of powers to armed you know anybody from the armed forces uh, it's been hugely controversial people have protested against it we also have uh, development issues it's it's an area which is extremely rich in natural resources uh, reminds me of myanmar and the border regions the more resources you have the more you are in trouble it's a resource curse so they have been hugely you know exploited their resources whether it's oil tea um, they also feel culturally isolated um, they feel you know they don't identify with uh, mainstream culture and lack of rule of law uh, governance issues has been there but i think uh, if i have to pinpoint one particular problem uh, now it's not so much the military it's not so much lack of development but i would say the fact that uh, this collective violence everybody's trying to create their own spaces and they don't want to live with the other community i mean uh, the whole question of identity has been very very important because uh, you know identity is thought by these communities uh, as exclusion of the other whereas uh, i don't define identity as exclusion of the other you can't uh, you know like madan sarup said identity is always formed uh, in in relation to the other i mean my identity as an indian lady as a indian woman uh, you know from delhi would not really matter if this room was filled up with indian ladies you know i mean the fact that it's a multicultural society you have people from different regions and cultures that makes your identity that much important and you know you feel the urge to protect that identity to make it grow to bloom and that's always in relation <coughs> to the other 
So, but this kind of, um, you know, excluding the other kind of politics is going on. <coughs> that creates a lot of violence uh, <coughs> in this region. Uh, so, uh, you know, how to transform the threatening other to the fraternal other, I think that's the, that's the key question. We also find that um, Mizoram had the um, district council. This is before it became a state in 1952. But the triggering factor for uh, conflict in this region was in 1959 when there was a famine in the hills. Um, and uh, uh, the people of that particular region felt that they were not really looked after. People died of starvation. <laughs> and you have the Mizo National Famine Front, which was formed in 1960, which became the Mizo National Front in 1961. And there was an armed insurrection <coughs> from 66 to 86 uh, when you know they went against uh, the state. Uh, and the Mizo Accord finally came out in 1986 and you have a state uh, in 1987. So it's not a very, uh, it's quite a new state, 1987. Uh, and it's had its share of uh, problems. But it's one of the most peaceful states in the Northeast now. Um, so if you look at Nagaland or Assam or other states or Manipur, it's one of the most peaceful states, 92% and above literacy rate. Uh, and I think that's, that's uh, something which we have to give to the Mizos because they brought every section of society together. So when they formed this state, they made sure that everybody came together. Mizo basically, the word means man of the hills. That's the, that's the meaning. And so, uh, but yet you have little, little tribes who are still uh, unhappy and there have been sporadic violence, but in general, the state has been quite peaceful. Uh, now I come to the later part, which is um, the Chins moving into uh, Mizoram and in Delhi, and UNHCR talks about them as, uh, you know, in a protracted urban refugee situation. It's a floating population, very difficult to know who is an economic migrant and who is a refugee. Um, as far as stats go, I think 100,000 in Aizol, um, about 8,000 have uh, been in Delhi, uh, 10,000 of them seek asylum status, many of them have been resettled in other countries. In fact, in 2008, um, stats said 435 of them were resettled in um, Australia, New Zealand, Norway, Sweden, United States, Canada. So these are the areas that they want to be resettled in. Uh, as I said, relationship has kind of you know swayed. Um, but Somewhere the common linkages of history and ethnicity are coming under pressure, primarily because there's a struggle for survival. And Mizoram has at least seen a 10% increase in state population because of the inflow of chains. Um, you know, in general, India has had a open door policy for refugees. It's been generally welcoming towards refugees. We've had refugees from Afghanistan. We have, the recent ones are from Somalia. We've had uh, refugees from Sri Lanka, from Tibet, from Bangladesh. Uh, from Myanmar, um, and we find that Antonio Guterres, uh, who was the ex-Prime Minister of Portugal, who was the UN HCR High, High Commissioner, he talks about how, uh, in general, India has had a good, uh, you know, kind of policy, open-door policy for refugees. Uh, I spoke to a lady from UN HCR um, who also mentioned that, uh, in general, the country is not a signatory to the 1951 uh, Refugee uh, Convention and 1967 Protocol. And yet it has, in its own ways, dealt with this huge influx of people. And mind you, I mean, we have our own population to deal with, you know, and our own set of problems. And, and uh, so, now reasons for fleeing Myanmar, um, many, many, for the Chins to come to this part. Uh, one in eight households were forcibly displaced. One third possible uh, conscriptions were of children. Crimes against humanity, 92% of them uh, were, uh, you know, surveyed households said 
something happened with them. Religious persecution, um, building of churches was stopped, confiscation of ethnic language uh, Bibles. And again, in 2006, uh, Motham, the same kind of famine, destroyed 80% of the farmland. Um, and in 2008, I think 700 people moved into Mizoram uh, because they were facing this kind of food insecurity. Jethropa cultivation again, uh, this has happened both on the Thai side, um, Indo, uh, you know, Myanmar, Thailand side, as well as this side of the border. Reduction in food crops, 85% um, depend on slash and burn cultivation, rise of Jethropa refugees. Many of them actually took, uh, you know, took the seeds, Jethropa seeds, but they did not plant it. And those who planted it, they did not get the sufficient amount of, uh, you know, kind of compensation for it. We find that uh, also uh, this particular region has low communication setups. It's, it's poor. Uh, atrocities against women, uh, rape has been used as a weapon to Burmanize the minority, and there's been forced marriages. We also find that the um, Chins in, in Chins, I mean, in Chin, uh, Myanmar, they have had problems of uh, education and of health. Uh, but it's also true when they've moved into uh, Mizoram, they've faced problems uh, in, uh, in terms of livelihood, uh, education, health. Even when they're crossing over at the border, they, they find uh, you know, problems at the border check posts because bribes have been asked just to you know, uh, make sure that they cross over. And most vulnerable are the unaccompanied minors. In fact, UNHCR would say that most of the chins, the children, they are unaccompanied minors and therefore they are taken, you know, they're given uh, they try to protect them as much as they can. Uh, single women, widows, they are uh, the vulnerable population. Now, when they move into Mizoram, I think initially, uh, 1988, 90, um, the reaction obviously was of solidarity. They shared history, uh, religion, ethnic background. And even now, I think they are kind of, uh, I wouldn't say openly friendly, but supportive and this is uh, reflected by the fact that in 2015 there were floods and uh, the chief minister of Mizoram actually contacted the chief minister of the Jin state saying that we would provide as much aid as you want and this included the young Mizoram association the YMA it, it included the Mizoram people's conference uh, who said that we would you know we would uh, as we, we would provide aid to you uh, but we find initially when they came in problems were in two areas uh, the Mizoram used to feel that um, the market, you know, the Bara Bazaar in Aizol, that would be taken over by the chins because the Myanmar goods, they were cheaper than the Mizo goods. Also that the chins would use uh, Burmese coolies instead of the local coolies. So they just felt that they were taking over trade, economic livelihoods were being taken away. The other thing which the Mizos have felt is that the social problems, whether it's drug addiction, prostitution, um, you know, these, these are basically chin problems, chin related problems. Whereas the Chins would, uh, you know, obviously differ in their opinions and they would say, you know, it's not just Chin related. Um, but obviously the other issues of livelihood, lack of proper food, water, that continues. I think they are prone to diseases. They do not own land. They work for big landowners. Um, there has been cases of uh, domestic uh, and, uh, you know, sexual uh, related violence, gender and sexual related violence um, in, in Delhi uh, at times. Uh, and again, UNHCR um, and other uh, partners, legal partners and socio-economic partners of UNHCR have done a lot uh, for them. But one of the things which uh, came up in, in the reports was that um, they live in very constricted spaces and that does, uh, you know, has adverse effects. One is that it kind of strains um, the relationship between husband and wife because you're sharing it with like 
five other families. So that leads to a lot of uh, domestic problems. Also, the young children, you know, between say one to three or four, they are able to see their parents getting intimate. And so their sexual awareness comes at a much faster age than what it should be ideally. So these are the two kind of problems which they felt comes out of living in very constricted uh, you know, spaces, lack of private space. The chins also blamed, you know, as I said, they, um, they are blamed, blamed for moral degradation. Many also suffer from depression and uh, alcoholism. And um, well, prostitution, I would say, is a strong word, but also many of them survive, uh, you know, indulge in survival sex, which is, uh, you know, uh, it's a sad thing, but it happens. And uh, yes, so I was talking about border trade, and uh, I've already touched upon this. There are obstacles to church worship and religious rites at times. Um, chins in Delhi face women, uh, you know, they're prone to eve teasing and molestation, but. Um, I think this is also a problem which many of the Northeasterners who are not foreigners, they have also faced in Delhi at times and they have complained to the police. What happens with the Chins is that the, um, since they are foreigners and they have this fear of deportation and arrest, so they are uh, not willing to go to the police for lodging an FIR. And again, the uh, UNHCR legal partners help. There are also women protection centers. Uh, which are helping women to come out into the open and just go to the police station and file an FIR. Sometimes they don't know the language, so it's also difficult for them to convey what they want to say. Uh, when you file up, you know, you, when you're lodging an FIR, you fill up, it's in either in English or in Hindi, if it's not your language, you don't know what you're signing. So it can be quite complicated. Also, the uh, land owners, um, the house owners actually, they constantly increase rent and the visitors are not liked. So, um, you know, unlike the Rohingyas, I was talking to um, somebody from an NGO and uh, they said that they have a very community spirit, the Chins, and they like supporting the, uh, you know, members of their own community. Uh, but sometimes it's not liked when you have six families living and you're paying for, you know, one family's rent and it's, so they constantly increase their rent by three to five, four times and they have to move constantly. Food odors are disliked by neighbors. You know, the so-called rotten pork or fermented pork, that's not really liked because it's got a strong smell, so the, the neighbors don't like it. So there's lack of cultural compatibility, but interestingly, refugee women have also said that this has given them opportuni opportunity for activism, for coming together and doing something for their community, especially for women. 82% um, of chins have stayed less than five years in India, uh, which is interesting, and I need to you know do my field work to uh, improve my stats of how many actually went back to the Chin state and how many were resettled. I said 2008-435 were resettled. But the inflow of Chins into Mizoram, um, I, I don't know the current stats right now, but it seems uh, to be going down. And I was talking to a scholar who has worked on Chins the other day in the workshop. And she also said that, you know, prima facie, she feels that the number of Chins coming have mm -hmm. kind of declining. But why is it? Uh, what are the stats? I don't know till I do my field work, so I won't comment on that. But some of the stats are here. Uh, this is by Development and Justice Initiative, 2013. They did their own stats and uh, you'll find that fewer female-headed households, only 3%. 80% experience physical assault, very high. 92% consider their neighborhood unsafe. 60% members, they are members of some community-based organizations, which is good, which is supportive for them. The church helps them and what they do is they also contribute 10% of the income, no matter what they're earning. They obviously earn less than the locals, and the Chin men earn more than the Chin women. So the Chin women are the most disadvantaged, but still they contribute 10% of the income to the church, so that it's like a pool fund. 24% attended uh, children attended church schools, 
and 41% were not enrolled in any school. Now again, there's a paradox because adult education seems to have done better than children education. And I don't know why, but um, that's what the stats say. Now interventions uh, have been many, uh, led by the UNHCR. And they have social legal information centers, SLIC, uh, which uh, provide a lot of help, not only when you are filing a case, because it consists of lawyers and social activists, social workers, uh, but any other kind of help, it, uh, you know, they, they're always there, even when you're registering yourself, uh, because I'll, I'll go into that, how the UNHCR has uh, quite a systematic process of uh, registration, refugee status determination, RSD, and then they give you a smart card, whereby, you know, you, it's kind of, saying that you are a refugee official refugee and you have certain benefits. They also have Don Bosco Asylum, which, uh, which is again a UNHCR partner. Um, they, do, they do a lot of work in terms of uh, counseling, running language schools, uh, running uh, computer educational centers, children who go to uh, English medium schools, the Chin children. Uh, they live in neighborhoods where uh, the English medium schools are three to five kilometers away from their neighborhoods. Uh, so, you know, they have to, whatever, I mean, transport they use and they go to those schools. So, English is difficult for them to pick up and Don Bosco Shalom actually provides them training uh, to, you know, pick up uh, so that they are able to pick up on their English skills better. You also have a lot of women organizations who are doing quite a lot of work. In, in fact, uh, Don Bosco Shalom uh, helps the Women's Protection Center and they have provided livelihood opportunities for women and Koshish, uh, uh, Koshish in Hindi means effort. And Koshish is, is a clothing line which was started by uh, a mother and a daughter. And, uh, you know, so these are little, little efforts that they are making for the Chin uh, women to become more independent. Um, they also uh, have created a forum, and this is again supported by UNHCR, uh, where they want to encourage women to come out with their problems. And not only discuss their own problems in terms of reproductive health and education and all that, but also discuss UNHCR's policies so that you have an opinion about what UNHCR is doing and you can give your feedback as to where it's going wrong or right so that you know they can improve, UNHCR can improve, which I think is, is it's very good. They've also started, um, you know, with the Delhi police, they have also started initiatives like, you know, uh, neighborhood initiatives where the Delhi um, police are saying that don't consider yourself as a refugee, consider yourself as part of a community and therefore they have youth clubs, there are 11 youth clubs now which are working and uh, uh, they need a percentage of Indians also to participate in this. So it's not just about music and dance, but also about uh, you know sharing your problems. So you'll have Somalians who are discussing uh, violence when they are displaced, or the Afghanis are um, discussing forced marriages, or the people from Myanmar are discussing alcoholism and forced labor. So these issues are discussed, and this is a young young group, you know. So it's not just about sports and music, but also about discussion. Uh, discussion. Uh, and I think, again, this is very interesting because they want them to be included in the community, not to be an outsider, but to be as much, uh, you know, so if, if there's a violence, if, if there's a crime in the community, you take part in it. You, you try, and, try and solve it with the Indians. Don't behave like a refugee. Uh, you have uh, the YMA and the other student organizations which are also there in Mizoram, which have sometimes, you know, uh, played a very good role and sometimes their role has been controversial. Uh, the last few slides, I, these are things which uh, you know, I'm going to study in Oxford uh, in the next couple of months. I don't have answers to these issues. But statelessness is um, a human rights uh, issue. Uh, and uh, these are questions which I have asked and I, I need to find answers of what should be minimal justice and whether nationality is important for uh, enjoyment of rights. How much, you know, uh, in terms of 
the whole debate between legal citizenship and cultural citizenship. So if you are part of this huge cultural zone, do you have certain rights or you know, vis-a-vis legal citizenship? And then humanitarian ethic, because laws talk about norms and principles, they're quite dry at times. Whereas humanitarian ethic talks about compassion, empathy, respect, love, affection. And uh, you know that doesn't have any boundary. That doesn't have any norms. So humanitarian ethics should be focused on that when we are making our laws, asylum laws. And humanitarian ethic versus compassion fatigue. How much do you support when somebody else is coming from the other side? They have their own set of problems. So you know there, there's competition for, for employment, for jobs, for housing, for education, for health. Um, Yes, free uh, health services are provided by the Indial Upadhyaya Hospital in Delhi. Uh, again, supported by UNHCR, they provide interpreters, uh, especially to pregnant women, so that they're able to uh, communicate. Uh, but uh, how much? So again, that's why I just put in compassion fatigue. I don't know the answers to these. Uh, and transitional justice. Hannah Aaron talked about how increasing statelessness is leading to vanishing rights of men and women. Somona Dasgupta talks about how our anxieties are now non-cartographic anxieties. We used to have cartographic anxieties initially, that it's all, it's all about territory and about borders and we should not cross borders, but now we have other kinds of anxieties which is more in our heads, in our minds. So it's now just not landscapes, it's all about mindscapes and how you deal with those mindscapes and the fear in your head. Borders are lines of humanitarian management, Paula Banerjee. Um, I'm coming back to borders again, uh, you know, from where I started, which is Edwin Ardner talks about how these remote areas are full of strangers, but they're also full of innovators. They have ruins of the past, and they're also a part of an imagined world and a material social space. And I, I love this, uh, you know, what he said. Uh, it's kind of an interesting way to put uh, remote areas, uh, that there's a lot of possibility. These are not just dangerous terrain, but they're also terrain which have a lot of hope and a lot of creativity and innovation. Um, finally, I think uh, I don't have the answers to all the questions. These are difficult questions for me, law, ethics, heavy, heavy uh, topics. But I do know that the most profoundly affected are the least privileged. Uh, that's something which I've understood from whatever I've read. Borders um, favor masculinity. Um, I read somewhere that it's the um, male gaze which frames the humanitarian. So women's voices are suppressed. If you look at refugee committees which are formed in these refugee camps, how many women do you have in those committees? Um, so you know, women need to find their voice. And so it's good that these women protection centers, what they're doing um, under the support of UNHCR. Democratic deficit is a humanitarian deficit. It's violence. And again, coming back to the same point which I said earlier, minimal justice and ethical responsibility. So I'll, I'll end there. Thank you. <laughs>